Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is William D. Cohen, and he published a book in 2015. Title of the book is The Price of Silence, The Duke Lacrosse Scandal, The Power of the Elite, and the Corruption of Our Great Universities. And it was a New York Times bestseller. And I'm delighted to have him. Somebody reached out to me on social media and said, you should have this guy on your show to discuss his book. So I'm glad that he's here. This is not his first book that he's written. Uh, he was a former senior Wall Street M&A investment banker for 17 years, years at Lazard, Ferrez & Co., Merrill Lynch, and J.P. Morgan Chase. And he is the New York Times bestselling author of three nonfiction narratives about Wall Street. The titles of those are Money and Power, How Goldman Sachs Came to Rule the World, House of Cards, A Tale of Hubris and Wretched Excess on Wall Street, and The Last Tycoons, The Secret History of Lazard Ferrez, which was a winner of the 2007 Financial Times, Goldman Sachs Business Book of the Year Award. Then this book he published uh, in 2014, 2015, is also a New York Times bestseller. Then in 2017, he put out Why Wall Street Matters, and then also another book titled Four Friends About What Happened to Four of His Friends from Andover, His High School, which was published by Flatiron Press in 2019. And then he has a new book coming out on November 15th, 2022. The title of that is Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon. And uh, it's about the fall of General Electric, once the world's most powerful, valuable, and important company. Uh, he is a founding partner of Puck, a digital publication owned and operated by journalists and a writer at large for Airmail. For 13 years, he was a special correspondent at Vanity Fair. He also writes or has written for Pro, Publica, The Financial Times, The New York Times, Institutional Investor, Bloomberg Business Week, The Atlantic, Fast Company, The Nation, Fortune, Politico, Art News, and Barron's. He previously wrote a bi-weekly opinion column for the New York Times, an opinion column for Bloomberg View, as well as for the deal book section of the New York Times. He's a non-staff on-air contributor to CN CNBC and also appears on CNN, MSNBC, and the BBC TV. He's appeared three times as a guest on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, The News Hour, The Charlie Rose Show, The Tavis Smiley Show, and CBS This Morning, as well as on numerous NPR, BBC, and Bloomberg radio programs. He was formerly a contributing editor for Bloomberg TV. He's a graduate of Phillips Academy Andover, Duke University, which is in this book, Columbia University School of Journalism, and the Columbia University Graduate School of Business, and grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, lives in NYC with his wife and his two sons. Again, we're going to talk about the title of this book for people who are just listening on audio. Again, is The Price of Silence, The Duke Lacrosse Scandal, The Power Elite, and the corruption of our great universities. So we have William D. Cohen. So William, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here. So William, for people who may not, great. So I, thanks for uh, thanks for coming to the interview. For people who may not have heard of your earlier books, can you kind of talk about the arc of the your publications and what led you to write *The Price of Silence*? Well, I don't think I uh, did this intentionally, but some sort of sub some liminal. Uh, adventure that I've been on about writing about places that I'm pretty familiar with. So, you know, my first book was about Lazard Frere, the investment bank, where I'd worked for six years. Now, I had no intention of writing that book when I was working there. But, you know, years after I left, I realized what an interesting place it was. And it was worthy of uh, a book length treatment, which it hadn't had in a long time. So I'd worked there. Uh, you know, the next book, House of Cards, was about the collapse of Bear Stearns, 
you know, I, I uh, hadn't worked there, but I'd competed against Bear Stearns. I had offer to go to Bear Stearns, which I didn't take. Uh, uh, the third book, uh, Money and Power, How Goldman Sachs Came to Rule the World, was again uh, a, a book about uh, uh, Goldman, a history of Goldman Sachs and how they managed to get through the 2008 financial crisis uh, relatively unscathed. I had competed against them uh, for 17 years. Uh, and so uh, after those three books, I decided uh, I didn't want to write another book about Wall Street, uh, at least not right then. Um, and I'd, you know, was a graduate of Duke, uh, and, you know, proud graduate of Duke. And this incident always uh, sort of confounded me. Uh, I didn't really, uh, uh, couldn't figure out from sort of afar, you know, with all the media coverage, what had really happened. It seemed one thing happened. And then over time, the narrative changed. And uh, I decided that uh, it seemed like a really important uh, incident, uh, and uh, I really wanted to figure out what happened uh, myself without uh, any of the overlay of all of the biases that were prevalent around this whole incident, which developed very quickly. Uh, so I you know, took a blank sheet of paper, started at the beginning, uh, obviously knew a lot about Duke and uh, included a bunch of history about Duke uh, and just uh, without any preconceived notions, uh, which really kind of I ended up pissing a lot of people off because people had many preconceived notions about this. Uh, uh, I, went, I went about uh, uh, figuring out what had happened right from the beginning uh and interviewing as many of the people involved as uh would uh, they would allow me to do i mean uh don't have subpoena power unfortunately so have to rely on the kindness of strangers so to speak and uh so that's how this uh, book came about and there's a lot i mean you write in your book it was an extraordinary media maelstrom like it there was so much news it was it really went international this whole story and even i from afar didn't get really a clear, everybody seemed to have a bias or an agenda with this story. Maybe you can just, for the listener, give your impression of what really happened on that night in what 2006. It was March 13th. Can you do a yeah. little bit of background before it got into the corporate media, the national media? Sure. I mean, um, look, again, there are just some things uh, that, you know, we'll, we will never know. Uh, which is why the book is called The Price of Silence. But uh, so it was spring break uh, at Duke and everybody was off campus except for the players on the lacrosse team because they had two uh, games scheduled for that week. And so <clears throat> the tradition had been, uh, sort of unbeknownst to me, uh, that uh, you know, the lacrosse team would stay on campus during spring break. Uh, they would uh, uh, practice. They would have their games. Uh, cafeteria, you know, the food service was closed. So in this case, the coach, uh, you know, gave them each like 500 bucks, which was supposed to be their stipend for the week to, to allow them to, uh, you know, buy food. Uh, and... Uh, uh, on that very 
first night of spring break, uh, uh, they used a bunch of that money to have, uh, you know, a big party uh, at the off-campus home of, uh, you know, three of the four lacrosse captains. Uh, and this was a home right off Duke's East Campus, but it wasn't on the campus. And it was a home that uh, was one of about uh, 10 or 12 homes in this, you know, uh, upper middle class neighborhood in Durham uh, that were owned by a Duke alum uh, who had just, like the week before, uh, sold the homes to Duke uh, because the complaints about what went on in these homes from the other neighbors were getting out of control. In other words, there was too much partying going on. And don't forget that this time the drinking age was 21. So most people, uh, undergrads couldn't drink. Uh, so they would migrate to these off-campus homes to for their parties. And so this was another example of that. And there'd been all sorts of warnings through the fall from the police about you know, enough of this partying already. The neighbors don't like it. Uh, but so this uh, this party basically began in the early afternoon, went through most of the night. And uh, uh, an additional sweetener of the party was that they had uh, uh, hired, decided to hire two uh, exotic dancers slash strippers, uh, paying them $400 each which, you know, was a fair amount of money. Uh, and uh, so these uh, two women arrived. I think they were hoping uh, or wanting, you know, for whatever reason, two uh, white women. Uh, they ended up with one uh, black woman uh, and one uh, sort of Asian uh, black woman. Uh, and uh, uh, they started dancing around 11 o'clock at night and the kids you know uh you know 45 players from the lacrosse team uh, all but one of whom were white uh uh you know had certainly were lit up by then and the the the, the women started dancing and there was a variety of cat calling and other sort of quasi abusive things said to the women uh you know, the, the women uh, stopped dancing after about five minutes. Uh, the guys weren't happy because they felt that they had paid all this money to have them dance for, what, two hours, which, of course, is kind of a ridiculous thought. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the women left. Uh, soon, uh, one of the women uh, was by then fairly inebriated. Uh, this Crystal Magnum um uh, some people think her drink was spiked uh, and, you know, she ended up with uh, several of the guys in the bathroom. Uh, it's unclear what really happened there. Uh, eventually she uh, was, I was put outside on the porch uh, and eventually, uh, you know, she left. Uh, was Sorry to interrupt, up. but they they weren't there for very long. It was like ten minutes max, right? So they're called the, in. The, the dancing, the dancing was about you know five to ten minutes max, right? Uh, the, the you know Crystal was there longer because you know she was she went outside, she came back, decided, well, are we going to resume the dancing or not? And 
you know, somehow or another, she was uh, dragged into this bathroom at the house, uh, you know, and that's where she claimed she was sexually assaulted. Uh, at first, she also claimed that she was raped. Uh, and uh, there was also a kidnapping charge thrown in. Uh, so, uh, you know, and as I say, it, it, she was in this bathroom and then eventually she she left the bathroom uh, and then eventually left the premises. And then, of course, all hell broke loose. There were some racial invective and epithets yes, thrown in. It so pretty. it was kind of a racially charged. There was like one black guy on the... Um, Lacrosse on the lacrosse so. team, right? And of course, he wasn't involved in any of this, so it was quickly narrowed down to, uh, you know, the white players on the lacrosse team. And they, they like she, she ended up going to Duke Hospital, right? So Magnum did, uh, oh, she, she, she was found in like a car, right? And then the cops took her to the hospital. Is that what happened? Well, she, she first went to a, um, like a social services uh, center. It was now like one or two in the morning and uh, claimed that she had been uh, raped. Uh, they told her that, you know, they couldn't uh, 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 deal with that situation immediately, uh, that, that she needed to go over to the Duke Hospital to be tested for like a rape kit testing by a, a rape uh, nurse. So the cops took her over to the Duke Hospital uh, where she uh, was tested um, and, uh, you know, it was clear that she had been uh, banged up, uh, but it was also, uh, you know, unclear whether or not she had been uh, raped. There was DNA testing um, and then she was, uh, you know, released. Right. So, and she said that she was experiencing the perfect 10 of pain. Right. She was given that, and this, there was a nurse there who was supposedly a specialist who said that she was raped. Who can feel like Correct. that was the confirmation. Right. So that, but I mean, so she, that was a, she was a new nurse. Uh, she was from Maine. She was just down in, in Durham. Uh, you know, so it was, uh, uh, you know, it was a complicated, uh, right, right off the bat, it was a very complicated series of events. Right. And, and so there's this other, you talk about this guy Gottlieb was, who's an important figure in the whole fiasco. Can you talk about his involvement and kind of what he did right from the beginning? Well, he, he was, a uh, a Durham, uh, police officer, uh, who, uh, uh basically was, uh, convinced that uh, she had been uh, sexually assaulted and, and raped and uh, sort of made it his business uh, as part of the police investigation to uh, sort of prove that case out. I guess he believed uh, so strongly and I think eventually he uh, committed suicide, which is uh, an interesting uh, factoid, but uh, the uh, case uh, would have been uh, uh, quickly resolved. I mean, the police uh, uh, asked uh, the coach 
to allow the players to be their DNA to be tested during practice during that week. Uh, and the coach uh, agreed to do that. Uh, and the uh, uh, the the uh, uh, police showed up uh, at the practice at Duke uh, to uh, take the DNA. Uh, but uh, by that time, one of the players' uh, fathers, who was a, uh, a big-time lawyer in uh, Washington, uh, you know, basically said, "No, no, there's no way I'm going to let you uh, take the DNA of my son." And of course, that spread like wildfire. And so um, the the voluntary uh, DNA testing. Um, uh, was was scotched, um, and by the way, I think had they voluntarily agreed uh, to have the DNA tested, uh, there would have been, uh, I think, fairly quickly determined that there was no match, and there uh, probably wouldn't have been uh, any uh, Duke lacrosse uh, case or scandal. Uh, but because uh, the voluntary uh agreement to have the dna tested uh was uh abandoned uh prevented uh the police had to get the uh players tested and the way to do that was what's called a non-testimonial order that they got uh, uh a an assistant da to submit to a judge who approved of the order of forcing boys to have their DNA tested at the police station. Now, the way they got the judge to approve that uh, uh, non-testimonial order was to have the police investigate uh, what they believe happened uh, by talking to Crystal, by talking to the other uh, woman by uh, talking to the uh, boys, uh, some of the boys at the house about what had happened. And it became this, you know, I can't remember exactly, but, you know, five or six page single spaced narrative, uh, you know, that uh, about what they uh, figured, the police figured happened, uh, which became uh, the template for the whole story. The whole narrative grew out of this non-testimonial order narrative that the police uh, investigation over a period of a few days had uh, uncovered and, and written up. Uh, and then that uh, writing uh, was then uh, uh, submitted via the authorization of one of Mike Nifong's assistant district attorneys, uh, which was then sent to a judge who uh, approved based on uh, the narrative that was uh, in there uh, uh, to uh, force the boys to come to the police station in Durham and get DNA tested. That document, that narrative uh, became public uh, and resulted in the huge conflagration, uh, right. you know, big media conflagration that, uh, and so even when the boys showed up uh, at the Duke, Durham police station, uh, the media was already onto it. Uh, and, you know, that's why a lot of the boys you know, like uh, covered, you know, uh, 
you know, put jackets over their heads and covered their faces so they wouldn't be uh, put on TV. Um, right. They, and they, they, the, the, they, they were trying to cover it up, right? Covington was one of the local lawyers who had kind of a relationship with Duke. They said it would pass, just keep quiet. And that's the opposite happened. So like they were trying to keep silent. And you wrote an uh, interesting phrase was when they, when it was 46 players because of this NTO, they had marched in to take all their DNA on March 23rd. But once that leaked to the media, it was catnip to the local media. And that's really when it all started. The conflagration started, right? Yes. And, you know, at first, uh, this was sort of reported, uh, you know, this whole incident, uh, the party, the accusations was reported into uh, like the dean of, of, you know, social life at Duke, you know, uh, the uh, president, uh, Dick Broadhead, uh, you know, was not aware of this incident until, you know, sort of a week to 10 days uh, later after it became a conflagration. Uh, and, you know, they tried to snuff it out um, at the uh, uh, at the lower administrative levels. Uh, they, you know, hired a guy who was supposedly a, a lawyer who was supposedly a fixer. Uh, he ended up uh, dying uh, as well uh, to, you know, who had made other incidents at Duke, you know, go away. Uh, but but this one uh, did not go away, uh, quite the opposite. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, a disaster, uh, uh, you know, pretty much right from the start administratively. So, you know, Duke uh, did a lot of things wrong right from the beginning. They, uh, uh uh, you know, tried to, uh, you know, fix it and make it go away, keep it out of the, the justice system, keep it out of the police system. They uh, sh should have, uh, 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 you know, allowed probably the DNA to be taken voluntarily because had they done that, there wouldn't have been a non-testimonial order. And the other uh, very bad fact for Duke was that literally a week before they had completed the deal with the Duke alum who owned the houses to buy the house. So Duke owned the house where the incident occurred. And by the way, the, the idea, the logic behind Duke buying these houses was to kind of fix them up and rent them to families and they would no longer be available for Duke students to rent. So there'd be no way, no more partying going on in these houses that was making the neighbors crazy. So uh, with those kind of three strikes right out right off the bat in the first week uh this was going to be a serious uh issue uh for duke now they didn't uh realize that uh, uh at the outset but that became those three things became big factors as this went along and who was mike nifong and why is he an important part of this whole story well mike nifong was the durham district attorney uh at the time uh, he had been appointed Durham District Attorney after working in the Durham District Attorney's office basically his whole career. Uh, he had been appointed the Durham District Attorney after the existing Durham District Attorney was made a, a state judge. Uh, and so there was a vacancy which Nye Fong uh, filled. Uh, during the pendency, the 
13th month pendency of this case, uh, there was an election for Durham District Attorney. And of course, Naifong, having been the incumbent, wanted to uh, be elected in his own right. Uh, you know, and there was a, a competitive election. Uh, and uh, a narrative developed that uh, Naifong, uh, you know, Durham is probably 45 to 50% uh, black, uh, and that Naifong was uh, pandering to the black community by taking this case and pushing this case because obviously the uh, woman who was the victim here, uh, who was at first known as the victim and then later known as the accuser, uh, uh, the victim slash accuser, Crystal Mangum, uh, uh, was black and that, you know, the, the narrative developed that Naifong, uh, uh, you know, pursued this case as, as hard as he did because uh, he wanted to get elected in his own right and win the black vote in Durham so they could do that. Um, I spent many hours talking to Mike Naifong. I think I'm probably the only journalist who covered this who ever did speak to Mike Naifong, and I don't, uh, I don't believe that at all. Uh, again, going back to what we were talking about before, uh, this uh, one of his assistant district attorney, the police had contacted one of his assistant district attorneys uh, 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 before to get the non-testimonial order uh, before, you know, at least a week uh, to 10 days before Mike Naifong had any idea that this incident had occurred. Uh, he only uh, found out about this incident having occurred by, you know, going to the copy machine in his office, or so he told me, uh, and seeing the non-testimonial order on the copy machine and uh, uh, reading it. Uh, and that's how he discovered the incident that happened. So the case was already in the Durham justice system before Mike Nifong became aware of it. Uh, and of course, by the time he became aware of it, you know, there was also the concurrent conflagration caused by the media also reading the non-testimonial order and converging on the Durham uh, police uh, uh, headquarters to, you know, when the boys were being brought in for DNA testing. Uh, now, obviously, Naifong uh, made the decision to, uh, eventually made the decision to uh, bring the case uh, before uh, Durham uh, grand jury. Uh, he did that after talking uh, in depth to Crystal Mangum uh, and talking to the police investigators. Uh, the boys, you know, uh, none of the boys, uh, none of the boys on the uh, lacrosse team would talk to Naifong. Uh, uh, they decided that their best, uh, I guess their legal uh, advisors uh, were telling them that the best course of action here would be not to say anything. So uh, he decided to proceed with uh, going to the grand jury. Now in North Carolina, uh, unlike in New York, uh, uh, where assistant district attorneys present before the grand jury, uh, 
in North Carolina, it's the police who present before the grand jury. So again, neither Nightfong nor his assistants presented before the grand jury, it was the police. Uh, and then two separate grand juries uh, ended up indicting three of the uh, the, the boys, uh, the uh, lacrosse players, uh, for uh, th with three charges: uh, uh, rape, uh, sexual assault, and and kidnapping. Uh, and you know, uh, at that point, of course. It was the obligation of the uh, district attorney, who was Mike Nifong, to prosecute uh, these uh, the indicted, uh, you know, defendants. And he kind of was unusual too, because he was all over the media, right? He really went on ESPN. Well, yes. Uh, again, um, so uh, there was a period of time uh, when he was. Uh, ubiquitous on the media. This became in the media. This was eventually thrown back in his face. Um, again, he tells me he did that because uh, there was this uh, blue curtain of silence uh, that came down where none of the lacrosse players uh, were willing to come and talk to him and tell him what had happened. Uh, so he was trying to use the media to put pressure uh, on the Duke community, on the parents or whatever, to get the kids to talk to him about what had happened. But uh, that didn't work. He tried that for about a week uh, where he was on CNN and, uh, you know, also, you know, you name it, uh, uh, there was a ubiquity of these, uh, you know, sort of crime shows uh, that, you know, ate this story up. Uh, and he did that for about a week uh, to try to get uh, uh, somebody from the lacrosse team to come to talk to him, but they wouldn't do it. Right. So, he and once they once he realized that that strategy wasn't going to work, he stopped talking to the media. Gotcha. But he was. I think you you said he was criticized by other members of the bar at that point for kind of uh, making him well, look guilty. Making the, the lacrosse players. Well, that is a narrative that developed that okay. uh, uh, Nifong uh, basically uh, uh, made the players seem, uh, you know, uh, guilty uh, prior to, you know, any evidence being introduced in the court of law, even perhaps prior to the indictment, uh, you know, in effect, poisoning the well. Uh, you know, again, uh, you know, if you're a district attorney and you've got this case uh, that you're going to send to the grand jury, uh, and if indictment, if, if there are indictments, uh, and and the uh, defendants, you know, won't, nobody will tell you what happened, or share with you a mitigating set of circumstances. So all you have is the police narrative that was in the non-testimonial order, which, you know, was, you know, set the conflagration going and was quite uh, accusatory, uh, you know, whether it was accurate or not it remained to be seen. And then you've got, you know, lawyers telling the kids to, you know, not talk. You've got Duke, 
you know, effectively trying to cover it up, uh, you know, what choices really did he did he have? I mean, I'm sympathetic to what he felt as a district attorney he had to do to try to coerce somebody, anybody uh, from uh, who was at that party, 46 people, everybody shutting up uh, to come forward and give a different version of events, which they chose not to do. And the the whole situation, it was a hyper political politicized event. And there were problems, Duke had problems within its own uh, professorial uh, academic yeah. groups, right? Because yeah. people really Absolutely. thought, can you talk about that? Oh my God, this, this, this polarized the campus. Uh, you know, it was extremely polarizing in, in the nation. I mean, why I found it such a compelling narrative and why I wanted to explore it is because, you know, it kind of had it all. I mean, it was a precursor of the uh, many of the uh, racial incidents that we've seen more recently. It's uh, It was as polarizing as any uh, event that we saw during the, you know, Trump administration. Uh, it sort of was a precursor for uh, sexual assault incidents and the Me Too movement on campus and elsewhere. Uh, it was exploited by uh, pretty much every uh, group who chose to. I mean, for a while, Durham became, uh, you know, ground zero for, you know, all sorts of protest movements. Uh, you know, Al Sharpton, uh, Jesse Jackson. Uh, it really, you know, there were protests in front of the house. It divided the Duke campus, uh, uh, especially among the, uh, you know, what was generally speaking a pretty uh, progressive slash liberal uh, pro group of professors, uh, you know, who went on the attack against the administration uh, for the sense that, you know, maybe this was being covered up and that of course, these, you know, white lacrosse player, privileged white lacrosse players were, uh, you know, always out of hand, always played by different rules, always were the alpha males on campus, you know, always, you know, pushed the barriers of behavior and, you know, constantly got away with it. Uh, so there was great uh, upheaval uh on 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 the campus and um you know it's sort of this, while this was uh going going on uh you know in the first couple of weeks uh and you know there was all, all sorts of pushback against the narrative that was developing what what really uh there was an unfortunate uh incident you know then duke started going through uh the emails of the players uh, because, of course, uh, there was like a listserv uh, that went around to the Duke players and it was on the Duke uh, uh, servers. And so that, I guess, gave Duke, uh, you know, authorization slash permission to search their emails. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, one of the uh, players, a guy named Ryan McFadden, uh, 
wrote an email at like two in the morning after getting back from the party. It was obviously satire uh, based on a, a, a American book, Psycho. American Psycho that the players had read, and um, and uh, that email you sort of got out uh, uh, was released to the media, slipped to the media without any context. Uh, unfortunately, basically, uh, it's almost too graphic to talk about, but basically, you know, confirmed in many people's mind exactly what Crystal had said happened. Uh, and at that point, the, you know, the, the lacrosse coach got fired, the season got canceled, uh, you know, uh, Broadhead dug in, uh, and it was just a public relations disaster at that point. You know, this is kind of like two weeks later, uh, which sort of confirmed in an email written at two in the morning, which was satirical, but did not get that context until much later uh, that, the, you know, this kind of crazy behavior had happened. And they did the, the lacrosse players slowly realized this is they were in a completely different environment after a couple of great weeks. Right. Because you wrote that McFadden said wow like he was secretly recorded by i think another student newspaper and quoted and he was like in shock that that actually happened like he was in a completely different yeah he was he he, he had talked you know a woman who was on the chronicle was his you know classmate and she talked to him about the incident and recorded it and then published what you know he wrote what he said which again further added fuel to the fire the, the mcfadden uh uh email you know really pushed the whole story uh unfairly i mean ultimately ryan was the only player who ever agreed to talk to me and we talked in new york where where i live and he was living uh, i think at the time uh and i was very sympathetic to he had nothing to do with what happened at the party uh had left early and come back but, you know, wrote this obviously stupid satirical email, which he thought was probably funny, uh, but, uh, you know, and wrote it to what he thought was like one of his teammates. But of course, Duke, you know, was trying to figure out what had happened. And so they took it upon themselves, which, you know, is some, some, some you know, questionable, uh, you know, sleuthing. And it's what we all kind of fear might happen, you know, uh, using, uh, you know, the university's servers to send an email. And of course that gave them the right to search and they dug this up and then released it publicly, which, or somebody did, which, you know, became a, a further conflagration. So that just inflamed everything even more. And everybody was talking about it. it went through the whole news cycles. It was always oh, in the news. Over and, and over and over again. Nancy Grace, you know, yeah. on her show. It was like the biggest story, you know, around for March, April, May of uh, 2006. Incredible. Yeah, it was. And I mean, that was they painted these guys as and in a lot of ways, in some ways, I think it might have been true because you write about the context of this event, what happened, the drinking, the other kind of scandals that happened in colleges. And uh, it seems like they had gotten away with that, like. Uh, They'd gotten away with stuff forever. Even when I was at Duke, which was, of course, you know, 20, uh, 
30 years earlier, uh, you know, they were the alpha males on campus. They weren't, you know, don't forget the, the team had gone to the finals the year before of the NCAA tournament and, and lost and, uh, you know, they had great expectations. And these were big men on campus, you know, uh, you know, almost as, uh, as not as big, uh, literally, figuratively, as as Coach K's basketball team. But, uh, you know, first of all, there were a lot more of them. Uh, uh, they weren't pituitary cases like the basketball players. And, and Coach K, of course, kept the basketball players, you know, ring-fenced. So there wasn't going to be any kind of behavior like this. The the the, the lacrosse team was much more, you know, loosey goosey, and had been for a while. Like right. it turns out, this a party uh, that occurred during spring break was something that, uh, you know, was an annual event, which no one had uh, questioned. Right, and they were drinking. They started drinking. I think you wrote they started drinking at like three or four. So they yeah, were, yeah, yeah. They, they, you know, yeah. they, they, they had a capacity, they'd been drinking, they'd switched between beer and, you know, whiskey and Jack Daniels and all that stuff. So, yeah, they were pretty rowdy. And I think they didn't get the kind of dancing they hoped they were going to get. And of course, there was a lot of racial epithets thrown that were very, very unpleasant. Um, and, uh, so that was that was the narrative that was set, uh, you know, throughout the rest of the school year. That you know, the next three or four months of the school year before graduation, uh, and the day that uh, uh, you know of uh, graduation was the day that you know the third uh, 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 boy was in, was indicted, and uh, you know that I think was like Easter Sunday too. So it was really kind of a extremely bittersweet uh, situation to put it mildly. Uh, and, uh, you know, it just, uh, you know, you know, utterly, and I'm a part of the reason that this later got questioned too, is that the boys were indicted is that the police did this sort of digital lineup and the boys weren't cooperating. And so they did this digital lineup of pictures of the 45, you know, white players on the team and asked Crystal to identify, you know, the, the, the people who were her attackers uh, or who she thought were the attackers. And she chose, you know, these three guys. And, uh, uh, you know, it was, some people thought it was like shooting fish in a barrel because she had their pictures and she was just going through them, you know, one after another on the computer, uh, you know, talking about whether or not they, she recognized any of them. And, you know, she had said there were three of them, so she was going to pick three of them, and she did. And, of course, as a result of that, all, all three of them were indicted. And one of the key elements of the case was that the, the rape kit never had, or the rape evidence never fingered anybody's dna right and I none, none of the none of the players dna that's that's right although that's not completely true either um so you know the whole uh dna process has become of course a matter of much 
dispute um, and I think misunderstanding. Uh, you know, the first rate kit, the DNA was uh, processed and um, came back with none of the players' DNA. And I think uh, Naifong thought that it was too superficially done. Uh, and so he asked a second lab to review the DNA evidence. Uh, they came back with much more uh, uh, much more thorough analysis. Uh, again, there was no uh, DNA from the boys except uh, David Evans, the captain, one of the co-captains and the third and the senior who was graduating and the third uh, player indicted uh, on his graduation day. Um, his DNA was found under the uh, uh, the fake fingernails of Crystal Mangum from the bathroom. In other words, there was a struggle that occurred in the bathroom. Uh, unclear, you know, whether it was a result of a sexual assault, the rape charge was later dropped, uh, uh, or just holding her in there uh, against her will, which is a kidnapping charge. But in any event, there was a struggle. She, you know, clawed, I guess, at David Evans' arm to try to get away, and her fake fingernails flew off. And under those fake fingernails was uh, David Evans' DNA, uh, you know, on his skin or skin cells or whatever. And of course, that never became public. Uh, that was something that I discovered in my uh, uh, studying of the DNA evidence. But uh, you know, uh, Naifong, you know, um, continued with the uh, prosecution, uh, you know, having talked to Crystal, who told her, told him what she believed happened. Uh, and despite the fact that there was no DNA evidence from the boys, uh, now some people could question that decision. Um, his argument is, you know, this DNA evidence is imperfect to begin with. We've prosecuted many rape and sexual assault cases before there was DNA evidence available. Um, and, you know, he, he got criticized for, uh, you know, not laying out for the defense the fact that there was no DNA evidence from the players. He gave them all the DNA evidence and their lawyers went through it and realized that there was no DNA evidence from uh, the players who were indicted. Uh, uh, there was DNA evidence from other people uh, who I guess were various boyfriends or acquaintances of Crystal. So that complicated things, you know, immensely. But I think it's not accurate to say, some people said, oh, Nifon hid the DNA evidence because it wasn't favorable to his case, but he actually didn't hide the DNA evidence. He turned it all over to the defense he just didn't trumpet what was in it, and they figured it out on their own. And then they, of course, trumpeted that uh, that their uh, uh, client's uh, DNA was not involved. And so how did this sort of completely unwind? You know, it was like a huge story. It was these kids are guilty. Uh, and then in the fall of... of uh, 2006, uh, you know, what happened is that the 
attorneys for the players uh, somehow convinced the state bar of of uh, Nifong's bad behavior and that he should be uh, tried by the state bar for his bad behavior, uh, of which there were two components, sort of one using the media uh, to try to, in effect, indict the boys and convict the boys. That was the first charge. The second charge was failing to uh, share with the uh, defense the DNA evidence. You know, I think both of those charges are kind of like trumped up and, you know, not accurate. But the state bar was on a mission. It was like the first time in the state bar's like 145 year history that they had ever gone after a sitting district attorney. And I think it tells you the power that the attorneys that the boys hired who were from Raleigh uh, had with the state bar, which was also based in Raleigh. Um, and so uh, it was clear to Nifon that he was going to have to recuse himself from the case because he was going to have to defend himself in front of the state bar. So at the end of 2006, he talked to um, Crystal and he said, look, uh, you can't remember anymore, uh, you know, if you were actually raped, uh, which is, you know, a sexual thing, uh, you know, so we're going to have to drop the rape charge. You think you were sort of assaulted with a, a broom stick, uh, you know, you remember that. And so we'll keep the sexual assault charge and we'll keep the kidnapping charge. But, you know, honestly, I'm going to have to recuse myself now from this case because the state bar has come after me, courtesy of the defense attorneys. I'm gonna to have to recuse myself and turn this case over to the uh, state attorney general, Roy Cooper, who now, by the way, is the governor of North Carolina. Uh, and he's going to have to take this case over and prosecute it or not. Uh, so, you know, if it's all the same to you, this might be a good time to drop the case. Uh, she actually uh, did not like that suggestion at all. She insisted that she uh, had been the, uh, you know, had been criminally assaulted and wanted her, you know, day in court and she wanted her justice. Uh, so uh, Nifong recused himself. Uh, the case was turned over to Roy Cooper, the state attorney general. Between January and April of 2007, uh, the you know state bureau of investigation, you know, did a secret investigation of the case. Their findings have never been made public, despite my requests uh, for uh, that information being turned over uh, through like a FOIA request. Uh, and then in April of 2007, uh, Roy Cooper stood in front of the, you know, the state the North Carolina press, uh, issued a, you know, perfunctory, you know, 20 page report declaring the boys innocent, which isn't even a option in the justice system. You're either guilty or not guilty. Uh, you know, all the charges uh, against them were dropped. There was no trial. Um, and, you know, the boys were exonerated and declared innocent, which again is not, I mean, how could he know whether they were innocent? They, 
he wasn't in the room. Uh, so, you know, and there was no jury trial. I, mean, I think this is one of the only instances, I can't really think of another, but there must be another, of, uh, you know, the American justice system where uh, uh, people were indicted but never tried. Uh, and then the case was dropped. You know, usually when you're indicted by a grand jury, then the next step is, you know, criminal trial. And both sides, you know, both sides present their evidence. They do their cross-examinations. Uh, they uh, do discovery. And the jury hears the case and decides what's going to happen. That didn't happen here. The case was taken over by a sitting state attorney general who got private and essentially state investigators to reinvestigate everything and decided to drop it. Now, it's incredible. Point, and the, the amount of yeah. costs associated with this case, too, were vast, right? Can you talk about that? Yeah, we're, I mean, we're almost uh, at the hour, too. Yeah. So, so the, yeah. So one of the great revelations of the book was that each of the three indicted players got $20 million uh, to basically keep quiet and make litigation against Duke go away, as we talked about close to the beginning. Uh, the the cost of legal fees and the settlements with the three players and then the settlements with other players cost Duke about $100 million. So this case, <laughs> this party, which of course Duke had nothing to do with except happening to own the house where the party took place for about a week, uh, you know, cost Duke a hundred million dollars. It's incredible. It's incredible. Just uh, all weird series of events too. And just, just the fact that the girls are there for 10 minutes and yep. some whatever happened. But I mean, it's a really interesting book. You've done superb research and you're an excellent writer, very detail oriented. So I highly recommend people check this out. Where's the best place for people to get the price of silence? You know, uh, at their, well, probably the easiest is, of course, Amazon. I think they can probably get it for, you know, 25 cents at this point. Um, so that's probably the cheapest and best. And and do you have social media or a website where people can reach yeah, out I'm, to you? Yeah, I'm on, uh, I don't really like social media, but I'm on Twitter because I'm a journalist. And so I feel like I have to be. That's at William Cohen. I have my own website. Uh, WilliamCohen.com, where like the vast majority of my articles in journalism for the last uh, 17 years are up there, as well as you know my six books and where to buy them, as well as the preview of my coming book about the rise and fall of GE, uh, the seventh book, Power Failure, which is coming in November. Right, Power Failure: The Rise and Fall of an American Icon. That'll be out in 2022. Your website is your full name. William Cohan, yes. C-O-H-A-N.com. And the book we talked about today, title of it is The Price of Silence, The Duke Lacrosse Scandal, The Power of the Elite, and the Corruption of Our Great Universities, published 2015. So William Cohen, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me, William. All right, take care. Stay there. Stay there. Um, Stay there. So, okay.